If you will, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah as we continue our study through the Word. We have come to an exciting book in the Bible. Jeremiah is an amazing, amazing book. And Jeremiah was an amazing prophet. He was one of the premier, one of the major prophets uh, of Judah during the days leading up uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. We see that he was a contemporary, along with uh, Ezekiel, who was exposing Judah's uh, sin uh, with the word of God. He was called a weeping prophet, for he was preaching to a nation that would not repent, that would not turn away from its wickedness in any deep, permanent way. And, and Jeremiah's ministry spanned the final five decades of the history of Judah there in Babylon. Five decades. He ministered in an extended period of uh, time through numerous, uh, numerous different kings. Uh, he first uh, begins his ministry underneath Josiah's uh, reign. Josiah comes to the throne when he is eight years old, and he is good King Josiah. He is the last good king that the nation of Judah has. And though he began young eight, he ministers 31 years. So for three decades, there is stability underneath Josiah's leadership. Eventually, we see that Judah becomes gripped with the idolatry that King Manasseh had promoted. Manasseh was the wicked king that was before Josiah, and that wickedness had entered into the culture, into the hearts, into the lives uh, of the people. And, and we see that it is underneath Josiah's 18th year. He's 26 years old, and, and there is the discovery of the Bible, of the Word of God, of the Old Testament. It was found they were cleaning out the temple and doing renovations, and they came across the Word of God. And, and it began this spiritual revival underneath Josiah that, that spread. And, and we see that, that it was an effort that did have some success. But after Josiah's uh, untimely death, the nation kind of fell back into their wicked ways. There was tremendous instability politically during these years there, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt were all nations that were rising and falling and clashing with the one another. It was the Assyrian Empire that had dominated uh, there, but it was now on the brink of collapse. The capital city of Nineveh had been destroyed, and, and the retreating Assyrian army was defeated at Haran, and the last of their troops kind of gathered together there and 
staged a, a battle there at Carchemis. It's just across the Euphrates River. We see that the collapse of the Assyrian Empire was really due to the rise of the Babylonian Empire. Now you'll remember that the Assyrian Empire is the one that had already come down and taken the ten northern tribes uh, into captivity when they were in their zenith uh, of power. But now they're waning, but Babylon is uh, on the rise. And, and so we see that uh, that there was a Chaldean prince, Nabopolassar. He had defeated the Assyrian army outside of Babylon, and, and now he claimed the throne there in Babylon, and, and the kingdom now became the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and, and so he combined the armies with the Medes, and they ended up destroying Nineveh. And so we see that Babylon's rise in Assyria's uh, collapse kind of created now a realignment of power throughout the area. Now, underneath the Assyrian Empire, Josiah and the northern and the and Judah, they were a vassal state. They they gave tribute, tremendous amounts of tribute to the Assyrians because they were a, a conquered nation underneath the Assyrian Empire. When the Assyrians kind of fell back. Then the Judah threw off the, the yoke of the Assyrians and they had this brief period now where Babylon and, and Assyria are battling with one another and Judah just experiences this, this time of independence. Now, while Babylon, the Babylonians, and the Assyrians are, are battling, Egypt here senses that there's an opportunity while these two big boys are fighting for them to come back in and to take back the territory from the west that they had lost to the Assyrians. And, and so now they come and they now begin their attack and their forward march. Now, King Josiah, uh, he didn't know what the consequences would be for Judah if Egypt uh, was uh, successful. And Egypt uh, now uh, had come out to, to help the Assyrians uh, fight the Babylonians. So an alliance was made between Egypt and the Assyrians. As the Egyptians marched their army out to help the Assyrians against the Babylonians, Josiah brings his troops out to prevent the Egyptians from going and helping the Assyrians and not wanting to come underneath the control of the Egyptians. But Josiah attacks and ultimately we see that, that Josiah is killed in battle and the Egyptian army is victorious and they continue on to help the Assyrians. Whether the attack upon the Assyrians uh, weakened them or whether it delayed them, by the time that they got to help to aid the Assyrians, uh, the Assyrians now uh, were failed in their ability to recapture their land uh, and now they cease to be a major force in history. At Karshamas, the powers facing each other were 
Egypt now and Babylon and, and Egypt then assumed the control of Judah and they then battled against the Babylonians there at Karshemes and Finally, ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar led his forces there to a decisive victory and pushed the Egyptians back. And, and we see that Jehoiakim, we see that uh, he was uh, underneath the allegiance now to Babylon after the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians. And and then Nebuchadnezzar dies and Nebuchadnezzar returns to Babylon to claim the throne. And, and Judah now remains underneath the, the Babylonians' vassal state. They're now giving their tribute to, to the Babylonians. And, and we see that then Jehoiakim, Egypt now, wants to come and fight against the Babylonians. And so they come to Judah and to some other small nations and say, hey, let's revolt together. And so Jehoiakim stops paying tribute to the Babylonians, joins forces with the Egyptians. They battle now against the Babylonians. And, and we see that in that battle, Jehoiakim dies and he's followed to the throne by his son Jehoiachin. And we see that Jehoiachin then sees that they're backing the wrong horse in this race and they need to stop backing Egypt. They need to switch back to the Babylonians and, and to support them. And, and so we see that there was the back and the forth that was taking place here. Ultimately, then the Babylonians sweep in and they set up their own vassal there in Judah, and, and that continues on. And there is one more final time in which the Judah goes against Babylon again and goes back to Egypt again. And it was at this point in time when the Babylonians come in that they completely wipe out and destroy then Jerusalem to show and to set an example to any other vassal and state that would stop paying their tribute and would not be loyal to them. Jeremiah is the prophet through all of this, through the back and the forth of the different nations uh, that are coming in, the vassal states, the different kings during this period of time. Jeremiah is the voice. Nebuchadnezzar, one, the first time that they rebelled, comes in and he takes many of the, the quality people out of Jerusalem. You'll remember that Daniel is taken out during that time period. Ezekiel is also taken out. And Ezekiel becomes the prophet in Babylon, while Jeremiah is the prophet there in, in Judah. Jeremiah's ministry extends past the destruction. He is there for that destruction and, and he is left in that city afterwards. We see that in the, the book that we are going to be studying here that Jeremiah <coughs> includes a, 
an awful large number of chronological references that really help to date many, many of his prophecies. And, and so as we work through Jeremiah, we will be going through the different kings and the different alliances that were forming the background to, to Jeremiah's ministry. But here in chapter 1, we're going to begin at the beginning of his ministry. Josiah is the king during this time period here. And we begin in this first chapter in verse 1, and it says the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. And so these are the, the words of Jeremiah. It says that he is the son of Hilkiah. Now, when we look at that, that might not mean an awful lot to us, but what we need to know is, is that Hilkiah was the high priest at the time that Josiah was the reigning king. So he was the son of the high priest. It means that he also was from a priestly line. It means that his future would be as a priest. He grew up knowing that when he turns 30 years old, he's going to be able to start to serve as a priest. Now, you were not allowed to serve until you were 30 years old. And, and so here is his dad, who is not just a priest, but he is also the high priest. They live there. It says he's the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Benjamin and Judah, they aligned. They shared the border. And, and that border that they shared was about three miles away from Jerusalem, not very far. Anathoth was right on that border. So Anathoth was just about three miles away from Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that Jeremiah is very familiar. As he has grown up, he, he has grown up just outside of Jerusalem. He grew up with his dad being the high priest. He is familiar with the temple, the temple grounds, and, and also the high priest and the king. They also would know one another as being the two most prominent and powerful people in the nation. And so, he is the son of a very powerful, very influential spiritual leader, the, the high priest, and, and he is born living there in Anathoth. Anathoth also was a city that was allocated by Joshua to the priest. Remember when the, when the Israelites came into the land, that they divided up the land, to, but uh, the Levites did not get a territory. Instead, what they did is they got cities within all of the different territories. That was to take the priests and to be able to spread them out through the whole country so they could then have the synagogues in all of the various different locations. So Anathoth was one of the city of the Levitical priests that we see that was given over. So he's surrounded by priests. He's just outside of Jerusalem. And his father is the high priest. And one day he's going to take his place as a priest. It says in verse 2, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So Josiah 
takes over when he is eight years old in the 13th year of his reign means that the King Josiah now is 21 years old. He is a young man. Young by standards in that the priests weren't even allowed to serve until they were 30 years old. There was no age limit on when a king could be king, but there was a, a limit on when the priests could serve and to be priests. And so we see here, and we're going to find out a little bit uh, along the way here, that Jeremiah is roughly the same age uh, as Josiah. He is either a, a late teenager or in his early 20s when we meet him here. And the king is also roughly the, the same age uh, as him. And it came also... <coughs> In the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the, 11th, until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So here we see that he gives you the bookends. He gives you the beginning of his ministry now when the king was 21 years old in the 13th year of his reign. And he now was a servant of the Lord all the way now to the very end, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, and so we have those dates here, a span of more than 40 years spanning across five different decades. It says, and then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you. And I ordained you a prophet to the nations. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. He is a young man. And, and the Lord declares to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We see the omniscience of God, that the future, the past, and the present are all open and completely visible to the Lord. He is all-knowing, and here he is telling Jeremiah, before you ever were formed in the womb, I already knew you. It is amazing to think that God knew you before you were ever even formed in your mother's womb. In the same way in which uh, an artist looks at a block uh, of granite and sees the statue before it's ever even brought forth out of that rock, God saw you before you were ever even formed. In fact, the psalmist declares uh, that in Psalm 139. It says, For you formed my inward parts, and you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How are you made? Fearfully and wonderfully. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you to know, have you ever looked in the mirror and, and been unhappy with any feature of anything that you've seen? In the, I want you to know, God made you the way that you are and you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and God doesn't make mistakes. So if you're unhappy with anything in the way in which you, you look in the mirror, you have to talk to God about that. <laughs> 
Because the Word of God says this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You see, so oftentimes the world sets the standard of what's fearfully and wonderfully. We look at magazines. uh, We look at what the world says is the standard for fearfully and and wonderfully. And and here's what happens. Short people want to be... And the tall people... Wish that they didn't stand out so much and they could just blend. The, the, the wide ones want to be thin. The thin ones uh, aren't happy that, uh, that they're so skinny. And, and everybody now is chasing around these images and my face is too long. I remember back in the, I think it was the 50s that they started measuring these, the faces, the distance between the eyes, the height of the forehead, and they, and they started, and they came up with this model of this is beautiful. And it's like, that doesn't exist. <laughs> That's just a mathematical formula. That's the world defining what fearfully and wonderfully made is. I want you to know, God chose every part of you. He chose your personality. He chose the color of your eyes. He chose the color of your hair. He decided whether you were going to be tall or short. He decided whether you were going to be athletic or or more comfortable. He, he decided the predispositions on, on all of those and things there. And, and, and he then put your soul in that vehicle. Your soul. In a temporary vehicle that is going to exist for a very temporary period of time on a very temporary earth. And these bodies, they're nothing more than the vehicles that he allowed us to interact with one another and to learn how to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and be thankful and praise him for every single bit of his goodness. There is not one thing in God that isn't good. And the way that he created you is good. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so here he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Before I was even formed, you already knew what I was going to look like. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Before you were ever even born, God already knew the number of days that you would live. He knew the number of heartbeats that your heart would beat, the number of breaths that you will draw. A person can be late for everything in their life, but they will not be late for their death. God has already determined that before you were ever even born. Some people have incredibly long lives and other people have 
very short visits mm. here upon the earth. But God has ordained all of that. The amount of time here upon this earth, God is in control of that. And it is something that was determined before you were ever brought forth. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. <laughs> How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God loves you. God loved you before you ever even existed. He loved you. And he brought you forth, and his thoughts are continually towards you. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. He has watched over Jeremiah not only before he even existed, but also every breath that he has ever even breathed. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You know when I'm sitting and you know when I'm standing. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. There is nothing hidden from God. God is familiar with all of your ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Here we see that the word of the Lord comes to this young man, Jeremiah, and, and he says to him, before you were in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, he says, I sanctified you. The word sanctified means to be set apart for a very specific purpose. It, it means that it will no longer be used for common purpose, but it is to only have a specific purpose. You see, Jeremiah was sanctified now by God. He was to be used by God. And, and then he says, and I ordained you. I designated you. I determined and I prescribed for you that you are going to be a prophet. But look at what it says. Not just a prophet. Not a prophet to the nation, but to the nations. And so we see here that here in the book of Jeremiah, we're going to see where the word of the Lord came to Judah during his ministry, but also as God's spokesman, it would extend beyond Judah to the Gentile nations as well. And in verse 6, you have the response, you have the reaction of Jeremiah when the Lord taps him and says that I am going to use you that I have known you, that I have purposed you, I have sanctified you, and I have ordained you. And then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I, I cannot speak for I am a youth. That word there for youth uh, means late teens or early 20s. And 
And so what does he say? He, he has been looking forward to the day that one day he can be a priest. Maybe another 10 years and, and he's going to be able to start serving God as a priest. And now suddenly God says to him at 20 years old that you're going to be a prophet to the nations. And, and he's like, I'm not even old enough to be a priest. How, how can I function as a prophet when I'm too young to even be a priest. He is concerned that no one will listen to him. He is concerned that everyone will think that he's self-appointed and that he is this young kid running around trying to tell people what God is saying. And <coughs> he's worried about credibility he is feeling inadequate, feels as if there is no way that he can possibly do what, what God is calling him to. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. God has chosen him. God has appointed him. God is sending him. And, and he feels the, the natural inadequacy that, that we all feel whenever God is going to use us. I remember when I was in the, in the school of ministry and, and I went there just simply to study the word of God. I loved the word of God. And I found out that they had these classes in the morning in this in school of ministry and they had history of the Bible and they had Greek and Hebrew classes and they had all of these different classes that I that I wanted to take but it was for a pastoral training program and and I remember that that in one of the early days of the class they they went around to everybody and to ask them why they were there and and what they hoped to do and Invariably, every single person except for Jeff Guype said that one day they wanted to be a pastor. Their dads were pastors. They wanted to go and, and plant churches. And, and, and the thought of me being a pastor was ridiculous. And, and I said, I have no desire to be a pastor, everybody. I, I just simply want to know the word of God and just grow in the word of God. I'm happy to be here to just study along with you guys. And the other one that said that exact same thing was Jeff Kipe, <laughs> who spoke here just two Sundays ago. The thought of being a, a pastor, impossible, ridiculous, absolutely not. There was... No, I was a businessman. I was not a, a pastor. And, and here we see that in Jeremiah, when, when now the Lord is revealing his will for him, we, we see that instantly it, it was, no, I, I'm too young. I, I, I'm not gifted. I'm not unqualified. And what does the Lord say to him? Don't you say to me that you are too young. God had just told him that he had been sanctified, set apart. He had just said 
I've ordained you. And we see that we have Jeremiah telling God what he thinks of himself rather than listening to what God had just said to him about himself. Do you believe what God says about you or do you believe how you feel about yourself? And here we see now the word of God coming up against Jeremiah's feelings. God gave us feelings, but he doesn't want us to navigate by our feelings. He wants us to navigate by the word of God, by truth and not how we feel. Feelings are a part of the emotional reign God gave them to us all the way from mourning to, to laughter, from sorrow to joy, and every emotion in between for us to experience the, the fullness of life. But that's not to be our navigational device. And, and here we see that Jeremiah is putting a limitation on himself based upon how he feels rather than Trusting what God is saying to him, calling to him. And I find it so refreshing here to see that, that immediate rebuke of the Lord when he says, do not say that I am a youth. Look at what he does go on to say. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. And so here we see that the Lord was declaring to him, he says that I have foreknown you before you even existed. He says, I'm too young. And he says, no, you will be faithful. You are going to go every place that I command you. You are going to speak the words that I am going to give you to speak. Jeremiah, you don't need to worry. If God be for us, and when I'm weak, he is strong. And Jeremiah now needed to learn that because the task that what the Lord had called him to, to him, seemed insurmountable. And look at verse 8. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Fear, fear, fear. So often we are limited by our own fears. And we see here that the Lord is telling them, don't look at their faces. They're not going to be happy with the words that Jeremiah is going to speak. Now, God didn't even tell them yet whether he's going to be a prophet of good news or a prophet of bad news. But this is his first indication here now that they're not going to have pleasant faces when they're looking at you, Jeremiah. Don't be influenced by it. For I am with you. And then do you like this? To deliver you. That's not good news. <laughs> if you're being sent and he's saying to you, and by the way, you're going to get in so much trouble, but I'm going to deliver you out of all of the trouble that you are going to get into. And do not look at their faces. Don't be afraid. And... I'm going to deliver you. And then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. How powerful a moment when 
God anoints for service when he calls and then he equips you to your calling. I want you to know whether we're called to be a husband or a wife or whether we're called to be a children's ministry worker or just to be a, a servant to, at the church or, or whether you are called to go and to feed the homeless or to evangelize or to just simply love <coughs> in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and into the end of the earth. I want you to know that to whatever God puts a stirring on in your heart, whatever you are drawn to, whatever you are compassionate towards, wherever your empathy flows and, and runs in abundance, that is the area that, that God is calling you. And, and he has equipped you, listen to this, before you were ever even born, to be able to take your part in the body of Christ and to be able to, to build forth the, the, the kingdom of God. Whether it's opening a door, or whether it is helping to clean up afterwards, each and every one of us has an area of calling in our lives. And, and there is an equipping that goes with that. And I want you to know that, that I have found in my own personal life there is nothing more gratifying in the entire world than just doing the littlest thing that God has called you to to help build the kingdom of God. Do not be afraid. I'm with you to deliver you. And then the Lord put his words in his mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. I want you to know what you're seeing is an ordination. I want you to know what an ordination is here at Calvary Chapel. We've had several ordinations and have ordained men to now and pastors and we're conferring upon them the the title but what we're really doing is just witnessing what God has already done in your life and we ordain them we commission them we affirm that we see God's call upon their life we see an equipping upon them and we see a walking in that calling and, and in that and equipping. We can't make a pastor. God makes the pastor, calls the pastor. We just identify, hey, that is a pastor. And there's an ordination where we come together, we lay hands on, we pray, and, and we confirm. Here we see that the Lord has called to him that he is a prophet. He's ordaining him right now. He touches his mouth. And then he commissions him. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. Imagine being a young man, 20 years old, and God saying to you that, that I have this day set you up over the nations and, and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to take unrighteousness wherever it exists and to fight against it, 
to tear it down, to root it out, to drive it out. Wherever sin is, you are to be in opposition to sin. Sin is rebellion against God. That's all that it is. In every single way, shape, and form, it is the ability to not do what God has called us to do. And, and one of the things that happens with sin is that we can normalize sin. And then we start to get uncomfortable with it. And here we see that, that the nation has gotten very comfortable with their sin. They have fallen into deep idolatry that has stretched from one end of the nation to the other. He has already judged the 10 northern tribes for their idolatry. They have already lost their land and taken by the Assyrians there, the 10 lost tribes of, of the nations of Israel. There's two left, Benjamin and Judah. And yet, now, there is such sickness, such moral sickness in, in the land. And God is going to raise up a prophet to be able to call to the attention of the nation that God is not pleased with their conduct. He is not pleased that they are no longer battling against an unrighteousness. And I think that there is that the voice of, of the Lord that we find in the scriptures that that wants to awaken our nation, wants to awaken our church and, and the church universal. Our culture has gotten so accustomed to sin that, that even Christians start to fail to recognize what sin even looks like because it's what everybody does, right? I mean, that's the way that you do it. And there is no sensitivity because of the culture that is around and, and the conscience grows dull. And God awakens uh, now, calls Jeremiah to be a voice, to shake the nation, to wake them up and to no longer be slumbering and sleeping and compromising with unrighteousness and then thinking because you go to the temple and still have the temple, and, and you offer your gifts and your sacrifices that God looks the other way and how you're living your life and where your heart is. Jeremiah, I'm sending you to tear down. I am sending you to destroy and to throw out and to root out. and to build and to plant. To sow seeds. Speak the truth. Replace the unrighteousness with righteousness. And allow for a fruitful harvest. And so, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, verse 11. Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. <coughs> and then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. We see God's first confirming vision to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah has some time to process that whole experience. And, and he's processing it. And what does it mean? And what does he do? And, and what's next? And, and the Lord comes to him. 
He gives him a vision. What do you see in Jeremiah? He says, I, I see an, an almond branch. Now, the almond tree was named the awake tree because in Israel, it's the first tree in the year to bud and to bear fruit. And its blooms proceed its leaves as the tree bursts into blossoms there in, in late in January. We see that the branch represented God who was now watching to see if his word is fulfilled. We see that the word for watching is the word that is related to the, the word for almond tree. And, and Jeremiah's vision of the awakened tree reminded him that God was awake and that God was watching over his word to make sure that it comes to pass. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I, I see a boiling pot and it's uh, facing away from the north. It's tilted towards uh, us uh, from the north. And then the Lord said to me, out of the north calamity shall break forth and all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods and worshiped the, the works of their own hands." We see this tilting pot represents calamity that is going to be poured out on all those who live in Judah. We see the direction of the pot represented that it was the peoples of the north that God was summoning now to chastise the nation of Judah. And so his message here is a reference to the coming invasion by the Babylonians and her allies. Babylon sits northeast, but when Babylon attacks, uh, it is going to take the northern route, and it is going to come in exact fulfillment of the word of God. They're going to set up their thrones at the entrance to the gates of Jerusalem. That indicates that the city is going to fall to them, and we're going to see that Jeremiah records the fulfillment of this prophecy in chapter 39 <coughs> when we get to it after the Babylonians capture Jerusalem. And so Judah's fall to Babylon is going to be a judgment for their idolatry in forsaking God and worshiping what their hands had made. The people had violated now the covenant. And the sin of Judah is what brought about her downfall. Sin always brings about the consequence. And here we see the extended sin now brings about the fall of the nation. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, now prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you and do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. And so 
Here we see that after explaining the task of what he is going to do, he charges Jeremiah now to, to get yourself ready. Literally, it's gird up your loins. Pre prepare yourself to go. I am sending you now. And he says, and do not be dismayed before their faces. Don't back down. Don't step back one inch. Jeremiah, I do not want you to be politically correct. I don't want you to back up one inch. I want you to stand upon the truth of my word against the culture. And don't be dismayed against them. And if you're going to be dismayed before them, that I will humble you before them. But if you will stand upon my word and declare it, I will be with you boldly. It is comforting to me that I don't have to argue with our culture. I just simply stand upon the truth of God's word. And if anybody has a problem with God's word, then their problem is not with me. <laughs> it's with the author of the book. And I often suggest that they go have a conversation with him. I am merely declaring what God has said. The Bible is very clear. We're not to add anything to it. Don't take anything away. Just simply represent God in love truth ah here's the tricky part in love not adversarially not judgmentally not aggressively not in a way that condemns uh, others you see how gentle jesus was you see how loving jesus was Jesus didn't come in smacking everybody around and telling them how far off of God's plan they were and, and living their life. How do we present truth and gentleness? How do we stay firm in who we are and what we believe with, without, without being abrasive or arrogant or judgmental or self-righteous? How can we truly love? Meet people right where they're at. Love them into the kingdom and let love be on display. That's the challenge. But at the same time, not compromise, not back up, not change our view because it's not our view. We're ambassadors. We cannot change who we represent and what he has called us to represent. We're just simply to be witnesses of his love and grace and mercy. Jeremiah, I'm sending you out. Don't be dismayed. Jesus said the same thing. He said, when, when you talk to them about me, they're not going to like it. He said, but know this, they hated me before they hated you. A servant isn't above his master. It's not you that they're upset with. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and the rulers of wickedness and high places. It's a spiritual battle. You've heard so many times the axiom that 
We hate the sin, but we, but we love, we love the sinner. Don't be dismayed. Don't back up. He says, for behold, verse 18, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. Hear the word of the Lord speak to each and every one of us today. This is what God has made us when we carry the truth forwards in love. Listen, a fortified city. That's what you are. A fortified city. An iron pillar. The strength of an iron pillar compared to a stone pillar, a marble pillar, or an iron pillar. And you visit Rome or Greece or Israel, <coughs> the temples that they had built in the ruins of them. And, and you'll see where the pillars have fallen over and then they break all apart when they fall and then they, archeologists piece them back together again and reconstruct even the pillars themselves. So pillars were a big part of the construction of, of all of the big buildings in the temple and, and all that you had. But an iron pillar? That thing can tip over, clang. I mean, that thing is strong. God's made you to be an iron pillar in our culture. He's made you to be an iron pillar in your community, an iron pillar in your marriage, an iron pillar in your home. Strong in the word strong in truth, strong in righteousness that comes from Christ, strong, an iron and pillar, and bronze walls, listen, against the whole land. <laughs> against the whole land. Do you know what that means? Against the culture. Against every single voice that speaks against the word of God. We are going to be a bronze wall against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, politics. Against the political leaders. The government is opposed to righteousness. We stand for righteousness. Even against the king. He says, against its princes, leaders, community leaders, at every level, not just the king, but also the lower and against its priests that we are to stand on truth, the truth of God's word, even when the church is in error, we will stand against that error. The Bible tells us that we're not to believe anything that a pastor tells you. <laughs> it says to test every single word against what? against the Bible, against the Word of God. Test every single word. Don't believe anything just because they, you think that they must know. You're responsible for discerning truth from error and to test it against the, the Word of God. So whether it is the king or the princess, 
or the church or the pastors or a spiritual authority. You don't just take it for granted. Test it. Know what is true and walk in that truth. And then it says, and against the people of the land. That means Twitter. <laughs> that means social media. That, 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 that means Facebook. That, that means no matter what the culture says, no matter if everybody is against you, if the entire nation is against you. Jeremiah, stand on the truth. Be the voice of truth. You're an iron pillar. And I feel that that's what God is saying to each and every one of us. Just stand up and live righteously in love and walk forwards regardless of the opposition that you are going to face at whatever level that you face in. Oh, verse 19, they will what? They're going to fight against you, Jeremiah. I'm going to let you know right now I'm calling you into a battle. So don't think that it's going to be easy. Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Fights. <laughs> Tribulation. Opposition. It's going to be a battle. The girding up of Jeremiah, when he says, gird up your loins, get ready for the battle. Because it is a battle. It's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's a battle between spirit of God and the spirit of antichrist and and we're in that battle and God calls us to fight the good fight and so here we see the the equipping now of Jeremiah they will fight against you but here's the good news they shall not prevail against you and he gives you the reason for I am with you says the Lord to deliver you. God is with us. God is for you. God knew you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. He chose this time for you to live. He chose this time for you to stand up and to be an iron pillar. To walk in love. To not back down. To not retreat. Don't look at their faces. Don't be dismayed. I am with you. Let your light shine. Don't put it under a bushel. Let it shine. And know this, I will protect you as you let your light shine in this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. God, we ask that you would just do a, a mighty work in each and <coughs> every one of our lives. God, that we would know that we are fortified cities, that we are iron pillars, and that we are bronze walls against the whole land. Lord, help us. Strengthen us. Help us to not have that same response of Jeremiah. I'm just a, I'm just a youth. But Lord, even when we confess our inadequacies, Lord, you minister to that just as you ministered to Jeremiah and his feelings. So Lord, help us to fight the good fight. Shine bright. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.